Our Father, we thank you for the Word of God, which we can hold in our hands, which we can read and understand, and which your Spirit interprets to us and grants to us the enlightenment to grasp and to apply. And Father, I pray that we will not only hear the Word, but as we have so often prayed from James, that we will be doers of the Word also, that it will be, uh, become part of our very being that it will stimulate us to good works and keep our eyes fixed on the author of the Word. Father, we thank you for your uh, promise to be present here this very hour with us uh, amongst your people. And Father, for the Spirit of God who will move in each of our classes, all the way from the small children to the adults, that you will be working in every Sunday school class, that you'll be blessing in the second service as it is transpiring at this hour. And Father, for those uh, of our group who are away this weekend, uh, we pray for your special blessing upon them. And we'll thank you for all that you do in Christ's name. Amen. Today we are looking at the Tenth Commandment. As we have looked at the life of Moses over these past, well, past year or more now, we have come to the place where Moses has led Israel to the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses has gone up onto the mountain, and God has spoken to him and given him the Decalogue, the ten words. We have studied nine of the ten. We are today looking at the tenth, which simply says this in Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet any of these things. The Hebrew word here, which is translated covet, uh, basically means to lust after or to wrongfully desire. We're not to desire to have for ourselves anything that belongs to someone else. Now, this is a difficult commandment in the 20th century in the United States of America because where we live in a society where there's a whole industry called advertising whose purpose is to make us lust after new things, other things, bigger things, uh, whatever it might be. There's, a, there's a, a, an intent to, to arouse greed and desire within people. And, of course, there is within all of us a kind of, uh, 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 you know, a basic nature that responds to that. And that's why God puts in here this statement that we are not to covet. This basic greed and lust is considered to be absolutely essential to the ongoing success of the American economy. If you don't go out and buy a bigger and better car this year than you did two years ago, the economy is going to go kaput, you know? The whole idea is everything has got to be purchased in greater quantity this year than last, so the economy is growing. You know, they always give these statistics about the economy is not growing, the economy is stagnant, and when the economy is stagnant, people get laid off, and, you know, it begins to create this spiral downward, and so... We've got to get out and <coughs> buy more. 
And of course, there are many feel, who feel that if you cannot constantly acquire good things, that your personal happiness is in jeopardy. We discover, however, from Scripture that covetousness comes from the heart. And covetousness is very, very destructive. Let me just read one passage which comes from the Proverbs. Chapter 1 of Proverbs, beginning at verse 8. It's, it's a very familiar passage. We've read it many times. But I think it just reinforces our, our understanding of this this morning. Proverbs 1, beginning at verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are gra a graceful wreath to your head and an ornament about your neck. My son... If sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious wealth. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son... Do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread a net in the eyes of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. The author of the Proverbs probably Solomon for most of these Proverbs anyway, very much knew what it meant to possess great wealth. The richest of all the kings of Israel in terms of personal wealth and, of course, the wealth of, of his kingdom. And he was a man who, of course, became so satiated that he would later write the Ecclesiastes and, and talk about vanity, vanity, uselessness, worthlessness. All is worthless, all is useless. Uh, which is, of course, where the, the end that, uh, that results from being satiated with all these things and all these goods that, that the world provides. And, and in this statement here, of course, he is speaking to his son. He had many sons, of course, Solomon did. And you'll notice he talks about his father's instruction and his mother's teaching, which, of course, is another reinforcement of the fact that it, <clears throat> it takes the father and the mother working together with common goal and common interest to train up a child in the way that he should go. And he, he talks about the fact that this greed, this covetousness has driven these people to go out and kill even to acquire. And you notice uh, when they're, they're trying to tempt this son of Solomon here, as he, as he puts it, he says, we shall find all kinds of precious wealth. We shall fill our houses with spoil. We shall have one purse. But what is the ultimate result? Solomon says ultimately that they are bringing about the shedding of their own blood. They're bringing about their own ultimate destruction. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they will be apprehended in this life or incarcerated in this life, but it means that one day they will stand before God and they will have to answer for all that they have done in their body. And of course, God is not one who is hoodwinked. He does not plea bargain. 
God simply deals with it the way it is. And thus they bring about their own destruction. Now, the temptation to covet will come to all of us at one time or another. There are, is either someone or something that we are, will be tempted to covet. But as members of the body of Christ, we must resist that temptation. And James makes this, I think, quite clear to us in, this, in the first chapter of James. Again, a, a well-known passage, but I think very appropriate in understanding how it fits here with this uh, particular commandment. James chapter 1, uh, reading at verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. You know, sometimes we think of trial as simply being persecution. But temptation is a trial. When the evil one comes and, and tries to stir up that natural feeling that we have because we're human and tries to draw us into something that is in violation of the Word of God, that's a trial, just as much as persecution is a trial. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, his own greed, his own covetousness. Then when lust has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, for every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James gives to us the two sides of the coin here. We have no excuse for becoming covetous. We have no excuse for lusting after someone or something. And we cannot blame God, even though sometimes we might say to God, why have you made me thus? <laughs> you know, if you made me differently, I wouldn't be tempted in these areas. But, you know, the scripture tells us that Jesus was tempted in all of these areas and yet he was without sin. And he became our example. And he has given to us the Holy Spirit to empower us to follow in his example. We have no excuse for covetousness because the scripture, as we read here, tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift that we need will be given to us. God delights to give his children good gifts. I think we need to remember the words of the psalmist who said, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Notice that what it says. Not just the needs of your body or the needs of your family, but the desires of your heart. But of course, it's prefixed by delight yourself in the Lord. Mm -hmm. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, if we truly delight ourselves in the Lord, then the desires of our heart will be in accordance with His character and His will. If we're delighting in the Lord, we do not have 
or, or, or we are not going to succumb to lust after something because that's not part of delighting in the Lord. Sometimes we might come to the conclusion that, uh, well, you know, if I delight myself in the Lord, He'll give me the desires of my heart, but then my desires of my heart will be what my desires are now. <laughs> and I want what I want now, you know. And, uh, but, you know, it's, it's the change of character that we really need to be seeking after. Uh, God wants to change us more and more so that we reflect who Christ was. And as we, or is, I shouldn't say was, but I mean, when he was walking in earth, and, and of course as he still is, and as we reflect that, then our desires are his desires and he grants them. And, and we've talked about the various passages of scripture on prayer. Many people get hung up on prayer. They think simply because it says that if you ask in Jesus' name, you will have what you, what you request. But you know, Jesus' name is not, it's not a, a, you know, an open sesame term. It's not just a password that we use and automatically God says, oh, well, you use Jesus' name, therefore let me do all these things for you. We need to study all of what the scripture teaches on prayer. And, and the script, scripture makes it very clear uh, that in, in prayer we must pray in accordance with his will. And then he hears us. And so it's a matter of discovering what his will is. And we discover what his will is as we become more and more Christ-like. We should not, and will not if we're delighting in the Lord, desire things that will be harmful to us or harmful to others. You don't need to turn to it. Let me just read a verse in, in Matthew 7, 11, which we have read many times before. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Now when he says, if you then, being evil, He's not saying that, he, he is not talking to the unconverted here. He's simply saying that we who dwell in the flesh are not capable of doing any good thing. We're evil in the sense that, in compared to Almighty Holy God, we have not been, you know, totally purified yet. We will be once we cross into the heavenly realm. But right now we are going through what the scripture calls the process of, for, of perfection. And in my understanding of Scripture, we will never achieve that ultimate perfection, although there are certain denominations who think that, you know, they have achieved uh, that particular state. But I don't find that Scripture makes that, allows that to be true. But if you then, being imperfect, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And he knows what's good. And it's up to us to discover what is good for us, too. And we may not know what is good. We may think, well, you know, that nice little home over there on the coast, you know, sitting up on the hill, looking down over the waves, that's a good thing. And he might think, well, when you come to the place of understanding my character, you'll realize that you're just greedy. You're lusting after something. Sure, it might be a good thing in the sense that you could enjoy the Pacific and all of this, but you already have a home in Reading. And the money you pour into that could be used for something far more beneficial for the kingdom of God than that might be, although it might seem good to you. This prohibition against covetousness 
is really basic to the previous commandments that we just looked at over the last three or four weeks. For example, murder is coveting another's life. Adultery is coveting another's spouse. Theft, stealing, is the result of coveting someone else's possession. And false witness is coveting another's reputation. In the Garden of Eden, Eve and then ultimately Adam too, yielded to the temptation of the fruit. They, they coveted the fruit. And they also coveted what the, the fruit represented, which was the knowledge of good and evil, which the serpent said God was withholding from them because he didn't want them to become like he is, which, of course, was a falsehood. But they believed it. And ever since Adam and Eve yielded to this covetousness. I mean, we need to really be concerned about this because as far as we know, this was the first sin to covet, to want something that was not yours and was not intended to be yours, but to want it so badly as to take it. And since that has happened, mankind has become greedy, mankind has become lustful, and mankind has become self-centered. And there's not a one of us in this room who is honest with ourselves who will, who will deny that that's a problem. That generally, daily, it's a problem to not be self-centered. We, we tend to react to any situation from out of our own selfish motives to start with. And then, then we have to kind of hit ourselves upside the head, not necessarily literally, but to, to remember, oh no, I, I'm supposed to care for that person's need and not be so concerned about me. You know, it, it's just a natural characteristic that has become part of the fallen human nature ever since that great or horrible event in Eden. I think it's very important as we look at this uh, particular passage to note that as was true of all of the commandments we've looked at so far, God does not pussyfoot around with the issue of covetousness because he knows more than anybody else knows how destructive it is to individuals and to families and to societies. I mean, God tells us not to do these things because it destroys us to do them. Not because he's a great cosmic killjoy, as I don't know who coined that, but, you know, I've seen it several times. He, he doesn't just up there saying, they're going to have fun, so I'm going to make that illegal, you know, or immoral or something. <clears throat> God knows what is good for us. We have been made in his image, therefore he knows us. And he tells us, thou shalt not do these things, because to do them is not to have greater joy and peace and, and long life, but is to destroy ourselves. And God does not want us to destroy ourselves because he loves us. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses, with God's inspiration, writes these words, beginning at verse 24. And he, that is God, will deliver their kings into your hand so that you shall make their name perish from under the heaven. This is, of course, in the conquest of Canaan. No man will be able to stand before you until you have destroyed them. Now notice verse 25. The graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them. 
nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abomination into your house, and like it come under the ban. You shall utterly detest it, you shall utterly abhor it, for it is something banned. You know, we, we could all come to Paul's conclusion, who writes in the Corinthians that gods are not really gods. The gods of the heathen are not truly gods. Oh yes, there are spiritual forces behind these gods, but they are not God and they are not gods. But that doesn't mean that an image which has been dedicated to a god is not a vile thing. And the Israelites were not to come to this statue, you know, coated with gold and say, well, I'll destroy the statue, but let me chip off that gold, you know. It reminds me of King Saul, who had been told to destroy the entire, all that the, the Amalekites possessed. He was to destroy it all. But there were some animals that were kept. And you remember, <laughs> Samuel says, well, if you have fulfilled God's command, what meaneth the bleeding of the sheep? Well, that's a concept right there that we can kind of carry with us. Whenever we start to tell to God some kind of an excuse, we can kind of hear in our, word, in our ears God saying, well, then what meaneth the bleeding of the sheep? You know, uh, Why are you guilty? <laughs> what is the reason you have this over here? Or whatever it is, you know. And, and of course, Saul's excuse was, well, the people made me do it because they wanted to sacrifice the best to you. And God's response through Samuel was, it is better to obey than to make sacrifices. The reality of the destructiveness of covetousness is further illustrated by the account that we have known so well. And eventually, in our process here, uh, if we continue in the direction we're headed, if we follow the life of, of uh, Moses with the life of Joshua... Uh, we'll see that. But in Joshua chapter 6, we see a further illustration of how damning covetousness can be. In chapter 6 of Joshua, beginning at verse 15, they've marched around Jericho for six days now. Then it came about on the seventh day that they rose early in the dawning, at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. And it came about at the seventh time, when the priest blew the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city shall be under the ban. And it and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab, the harlot, and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, lest you covet them and take some of the things under the ban so that you will make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the priest blew the trumpet and it came about when the people heard the sound of the trumpet that the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. And it was destroyed and everything in it. But, turn to the next chapter. 
following Ai, uh, that is following Jer Jericho, is down on the plain, uh, not far from the Jordan River. It's just a hundred or, well, no, it's about 400 feet in elevation higher than the Dead Sea, but it's still down at the base of the escarpment that goes up uh, to the Judean highlands. And as you go up the escarpment to the Judean highlands, as you begin to come to the level part up there, there were two cities. One was Ai and one was Bethel. And the two cities were within eyeshot of each other. And as they came to the top, they, the next city uh, in the course of their invasion was to be the city of Ai. And um, the city of uh, the people of Ai routed the Israelites. And they're coming back whimpering that, you know, God has abandoned them. And so this chapter 19 tells us what happened here. In verse 19 of chapter 7, then Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord. You know, it was very interesting. <coughs> Today, we always worry about, or we don't worry, but we, we realize that justice is not always served by our system. But if you had a system where God was the ultimate one before whom you stood in this life, and, and you had someone who knew the mind of the Lord, you were in big trouble, as was Achan. Because all he did was just parade the families by until God says, this is the family. And then they paraded the heads of the families by until God says, this is the man. Well, how do you escape God, you know? And so Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give, the, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him and tell me how, what you've done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent and the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. And they took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zarah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them into the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble, to this day. The covetousness of one man brought the defeat of Israel as a nation before the city of Ai. Covetousness is an infection. It's a, it's, it's a disease run rampant. And if it consumes us, it affects all of those around us. And, and it spreads like yeast through dough. It cost Achan not only his own life, but the life of his wife, of his children, and of his flocks. God is a great surgeon who cuts out a cancer. He takes it all. Unfortunately, Achan's sin 
was not just personal because it impacted the whole camp of Israel. It was a lesson for Israel to remember and to learn that your sin is not private. As God says, your, behold, your sin will find you out. Covetousness is really a very root basic sin. And it can be foundational actually to almost every other type of sin. Now, how, how does that apply to us as Christians who, of course, don't covet? There are ways, of course, obviously, where we can covet, uh, we, we can hide covetousness behind other terms like aspiration. That's a very good word. Success. That's a good word, too. But, you know, behind it can be something not so good. I'm not saying it's necessarily there, but I'm saying it can be there. For example, sometimes we may aspire to a better position. We may desire success, supposedly simply because we can, quote, glorify God by being successful, when really in our heart we're coveting the power, the wealth, and the fame that comes with such success. Sometimes we desire professional success, supposedly, so that God can be honored by the fact that we are a success in whatever we do. But in our hearts, we covet the lifestyle that normally comes with success. We've read the stories of the rich and the famous. We've looked at biography, and we've seen the great mansions in which the Hershey's and the Rockefellers and all these other people live. And, and we might say, hmm, <laughs> looks pretty nice. Just a couple of nights ago, we were watching one of the, it was about the floating palaces, floating palaces, yeah, about the great uh, ocean liners of the early part of the century. And, oh, I mean, this was the epitome of, of the ultimate lifestyle if you went first class in one of these things. Of course, none of us could afford to go probably even second class on one of those ships. But, you know, I mean, it just, it was all, the whole thing was, was geared to create lust and desire for, for this kind of a, of, of a lifestyle. To be possessed of such covetousness destroys our fellowship with God because we cannot be covetous people and at the same time worship God. His peace, his joy, the contentment that he gives is gone when we become covetous and it becomes replaced with restlessness and anxiety, and really a deep-seated fear. This does not have to be, though. It's possible for us to succeed professionally, or in whatever it is that we're trying to succeed in, and to be right in, in that effort to succeed if, first of all, we're gifted in that area, secondly, we work hard to honor the Lord before others, Thirdly, if the, benefit, the benefits which are accrued thereby are dedicated to God and held with an open hand. Lord, you have given me this income. It's a lot better than the national average, but it's yours if you want it. I will not hang on to it. And fourthly, if God has a kingdom purpose in our success, is it part of his plan that this success be ours? Or have we generated it out of our own lust and greed? If our motives are right, then any fame, any fortune, any power 
that might come with our success is going to be totally surrendered to God for His use and not held on to by us. You probably remember the story of Moses after, and we'll be coming to it a little later on, uh, when Moses came down from the mountain after having been up there 40 days and 40 nights, his face glowed with the reflected glory of God, you know. And the people were going like this, you know, and so Moses put a veil over his face. And later on, he was still wearing the veil. And you might wonder, well, this glory of God lasted a long time, but there is a passage in the New Testament which, which tells us that he didn't want them to know that the glory had faded. The glory had faded. And there are times which we strive after something that God is finished with us having this success, whatever it might be, and yet we might try to hold on to it with all our effort in spite of the fact that God has mo is moving us to a different place now. That's why it's so important that we be in His Word and in prayer so that we are attuned to the heart of God and we know the direction in which He is leading us. There are many, many in the um, Scripture who illustrate this. One of the finest examples was Esther who was willing to give up the power, the wealth, and the fame of being queen of the greatest empire of that part of the world at that time in order to save the life of her people. She was willing to die if that was what God expected of her. And we think of Joseph, you know. He was willing to, to give everything that he had for the success of his people and to bring his father and his, and his brothers into the land and, and to go before Pharaoh and say, these are my people, even though the Egyptians were not terribly in love with Asiatics. And there are others, uh, Abraham and Joseph. I mean, I already said Joseph. Uh, David and Daniel. I mean, Daniel, who, who told the king, I don't want your necklace and I don't want your fine robe because you've been found in the balances, uh, weighed in the balances and found wanting and tonight this kingdom will be taken from you. So no use in me being made third in a kingdom that's disappearing overnight. You know? <laughs> and Daniel would worship his God. You know, Daniel could have easily said to the, uh, to the Persian king, this is after the conquest by the Persians, the Medo-Persians, he could have said, well, you know, the law has been passed, the king has signed it, we're not supposed to, uh, to worship God without asking the king, so I'll ask the king before I worship God. No, he, he felt that it was God's requirement of him to worship God openly no matter what, and he jeopardized his whole life, his kingdom, his success, his fame, his fortune, to do what he believed was right before God. He didn't covet that wealth. He didn't covet that fame. He didn't covet that power to the extent that he would sacrifice his faith in his God. And that's where God wants us all. I think it should be pointed out that there is a kind of a good form of coveting, though, if we redefine the word covet just a little bit. To, to strongly desire something, to covet God's best for our lives, to covet God's best for each other, to covet God's kingdom purposes accomplished here on earth. If we want to see the church succeed to the point that we will do everything God wants us to do to see it happen, that's kind of a good form of coveting. It does not fit, of course, into the category that we have been looking at here today. 
Well, Moses was given these Ten Commandments, which he delivered to Israel. While he was receiving these commandments, and even afterwards, and then when he would go back up on the mountain, we have this scenario, which we read uh, from verse 18 to verse 21 of Exodus 20. And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you. And in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. When the Decalogue was given, there was this fantastic display going on all that time. The people stood back from the mountain and they watched the mountain. Was, you know, smoke and fire and lightning and the sound of the trumpet. All of this uh, great display going on while Moses was up there receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And the people were understandably frightened. I think you and I would be too. Even knowing God as we do, you know, it's going to make an impact on us to watch something like that. This is the natural response of sinful man. And we are all sinners saved by grace but in the presence of a holy God. That's what really distresses me when I see sometimes what goes on in the name of worship before God. Because it does not seem to me to express an awe of a holy God. Almost we treat God like he's some kind of a leprechaun or you know, some kind of a good genie or something, rather than recognizing that he is a the people stood back from the mountain and they pled with Moses, you be our mediator, you be our intercessor, you be our priest, you speak to us. But we don't want God to speak to us directly from the top of that mountain. He scares us to death. Moses' response to them was, uh, is not only beautiful, but obviously inspired by God. In effect, he says, don't be afraid. God hasn't come here to judge you or to punish you but to fill you with a healthy awe of his holiness and of his power. Why? So that you will be motivated to resist sin. Why does God make a fantastic display like that? So they will know the reality of who he is and how almighty he is, and that they will have a fear in their hearts to the point that they will do what they're told to do. You know, if somebody just walks off in the wilderness and comes back a little later with a list of things you're supposed to not do, what are you going to say? Oh, you just had a hallucination out there like Muhammad. But if you've witnessed this, this pyrotechnic display on the top of the mountain and you see Moses coming down out of that, glowing, you're going to say, whoa, God has spoken. These are the words of the Lord. And they needed to know, just as we need to know, that they were serving an almighty, absolutely holy God. Not a God amongst many gods. You know, this is probably just a petty little thing. I love the chorus, but there's one part of the chorus I'd like to change. Our God is an awesome God. That's what bothers me. 
He is not an awesome God. He is the awesome God. There isn't any other. So what's the and doing in there, you know? Scratch the and. Put a capital V. Our God is the awesome God. I mean, it just kind of almost sounds like he's one amongst many, a little more powerful than the others. Well, that's what the Egyptians looked at it. That's how they looked at it. But not as how we are to look at it. The overwhelming physical displays were to burn into the minds and the hearts of these people that they were serving the true, the living God and that he required of them humble obedience. And then we'll end with this. As the people stood there in stark terror, Moses calmly walked right back up that mountain and disappeared into that cloud. Now, it's not just a gentle little cloud up there. It's a black cloud. And there's smoke, and there's fire, and there's lightning, and there's a trumpet sound, and the whole mountain is quivering, and rocks are rolling down it. And Moses just calmly walks right back up into that cloud. Well, this, of course, exalted Moses in the eyes of the people, but the, God had a purpose in that, so that they would know he is their messenger. His, he is God's messenger, and, and that he is God's priest, and he is delivering the word of God. But Moses would have been the first to say, as, uh, as uh, James tells us about Elijah, that he was a man like all other men, and yet he was God's chosen servant. Well, next week we'll look at the last few verses of chapter 20, and then we're going to leap ahead because we've subsumed quite a bit of the next two chapters. We're going to move on into the continuing scenario.